Dear Father, we are thankful for the life of your Son. We are thankful that he shed it on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to you and become savable. We thank you that all you've required on our behalf is faith and faith alone, and that at the moment of faith we become eternally secure, sharing in the eternal life of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and we glorify you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we get well into the last week of Jesus' life this evening. In fact, we're getting three days from the cross by the end of tonight. So we are dealing with the preparation of the Messiah for the cross. We're moving then from his preparation of the disciples for what they will be charged to do after his resurrection. And we are moving into the official presentation of the king. Now, this is going to be something that throws off those who see Jesus enter into Jerusalem. They will think that it is an official presentation of the king to become the king. But this is the official presentation of the king who will die on behalf of the nation and on behalf of the whole world. So we pick up this evening where we left off last week. Jesus is in Perea on the other side of the Jordan. He's in Herod's territory, and the Pharisees are trying to get Herod to kill Jesus, just like he killed John the Baptist. And so they're specifically going after the issue that got John the Baptist killed, which was the issue of divorce. This is the second time the divorce has come up, the first time Jesus brought it up. Now the Pharisees are bringing it up. And they ask Jesus the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now in rabbinic theology of that day, there were two schools of thought on this. One was a wide interpretation, the other was a narrow interpretation or a conservative and a liberal interpretation. The school of Hillel taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason at all. Uh, really, whatever it might be, burning the soup, putting too much salt in the soup are very common examples. Rabbi Akiva in the second century after Christ even said, if a woman who comes by that is more beautiful, then you may divorce your wife for her. Now, this is just flagrant adultery. But this was probably the more common interpretation in that day. The school of Hillel was a very popular interpretation because it was the widest interpretation. The school of Shammai, on the other hand, taught that it was only for some immorality that a divorce could occur. Now, the issue of interpretation goes back to Deuteronomy 24, and the term that Hillel and Shammai disagree on the interpretation of is some indecency, or in the Hebrew, ervat devar. What exactly that means is where they are divided. Deuteronomy 24 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So what exactly that indecency is, is a matter of interpretation for Hillel and Shammai, and they are asking Jesus for his interpretation. Either he's going to agree with the school of Hillel, and they'll have no disagreement on the issue, or else he'll agree with the school of Shammai, so they believe, and then there will be an issue between him and Herod, in whose territory he is at that moment. But once again, Jesus doesn't allow them to frame the question. He reframes it and answers it, outside of their framing. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He takes it back to Genesis, all the way back to creation and God's purpose in creating man and woman for a union. Now, this looks forward, of course, to God's union with Israel and to Jesus' union with the church. This is a foreshadowing union, and those are not meant to be broken. So Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, they should stop 
trying to figure out how much they can get away with under the law, they should seek the righteousness of God. The issue is not how much can we do before we're in trouble. It is what does the righteousness of God require? They should have God's heart for divorce. God says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garments with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Of course, they want an answer to their question, so they say, all right, Jesus, if that's the case, then why did Moses allow divorce? Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus answers, it was because of the hardness of their hearts. Divorce is never something that God commands. Actually, there is one exception to that in Ezra and Nehemiah. Divorce is not something that was commanded, but it was something that because of the hardness of man's heart was permitted. Then Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now here's the issue with this. It's that adultery under the Mosaic law was not something that warranted divorce. It's something that warranted stoning. If a woman was caught committing adultery against her husband, she wasn't to be divorced. She was to be stoned and the man together with her. This could not have been the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Jesus is giving a new principle a principle for the church age that is far stricter than the Mosaic law. That which once merited death under the Mosaic law now became the only exception for divorce. And the Old Testament exceptions for sexual incompatibility and religious incompatibility were withdrawn. Jesus then gives them this new law of Christ, that only in the case of adultery could there be a divorce. Now, Paul adds to that. Paul gives one more exception. He writes in 1 Corinthians 7.10, To the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now remember, Paul in 1 Corinthians is speaking to a group of believers. He is speaking to a church that is spreading immorality within its body, but they are believers nonetheless. This is the principle that these believers are held up to. The exception comes when two who are not believers and one becomes a believer, the unbeliever wants out of the marriage. The believer is to let the unbeliever go. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, or she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Verse 14 says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage to such cases, but God has called us to peace. If the unbelieving spouse chooses to leave, the believing spouse is not in a state of committing adultery. At this point, Jesus and the disciples return to private. And the disciples begin to ask Jesus more questions about what he just said. This is different than their understanding. And in fact, it, uh, it's probably a pretty uncomfortable teaching for them, having grown up under the tutelage of the school of Hillel. So when they are back in the house, the disciples began to question him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. 
And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. This wouldn't have been any easier for them to wrap their heads around because in Jewish culture, even to this day, it is not permitted for a woman to divorce her husband. Jesus is giving a church age doctrine. Both are guilty of adultery if they divorce the other. This is something that is permitted outside of Israel. And so a woman who is able to divorce her husband in a culture that spans beyond Israel would be guilty of adultery if not for the case of, uh, well, of adultery or an unbeliever. Now we see how just how low the disciples' opinion of marriage is. And they say, if the relationship of the man with the wife is like this, it is better not to marry at all. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now this is also something that Paul picked up in 1 Corinthians 7. He had the gift, the church age gift of singleness. This is not a gift given to all men or given to all women. It should be exercised by those who have it, not by those who don't. It's probably while Jesus is telling his disciples these things and their heads are reeling because this isn't quite what they expected him to say or what they expected him to teach, that a group of children enter into the house and they want to have Jesus pray over them. The disciples try to shoo the children away and Jesus tells them, let them come. It is these to whom the kingdom of God belongs, or the kingdom of heaven here in Matthew, he says. He tells them that they need to enter into the kingdom like these children. These children who have faith and dependence on God rather than faith and dependence in themselves and their own works. Simple faith, faith in God, is what gives entrance into the kingdom. Now this is important because we're going to uh, encounter a few people who have a different idea of how to get into the kingdom. The first one is the rich young ruler. Jesus encounters this rich young ruler and he seems very anxious to speak with Jesus. He runs up to him and he kneels before him and he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is not a usual uh, title for a teacher. Usually they would not call their teachers good teacher. In fact, if you go all the way through the Gospels, this is the only case in which you find it. Even Jesus is not regularly called good teacher. This is something different. And so Jesus, rather than answering his question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He answers with a question, which was the common, way, common method of that day for teaching. He wants him to think about what he just said, because therein lies the answer. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This rich young ruler recognized something different about Jesus, even called him good, which is the Greek word agathos. There are two Greek words for good. The other is kalos. Kalos just means extrin extrinsic good, something pleasing. Agathos is intrinsic good, something that in and of itself is a good thing. Jesus is saying only God is intrinsically good. Only God is in and of himself a good thing. If you call me good, what basis do you have to do that? Now, if this rich young ruler had said, because you are God, he would have demonstrated his faith. But this is a challenging statement for the man. Jesus continues and tells him, you know the commandments. He tells him the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments, those six which refer to relationships between men. He leaves out the first four commandments 
regulating man's relationship to God. The rich young ruler says, all of these I have kept from my youth. His claim is that he has loved his neighbor as himself, even from his youth, keeping the second most important commandment of the law. Unfortunately, he has not kept the first commandment of the law, and that's what Jesus is going to show him in his next statement. The rich young ruler recognized that he was still lacking something, so he asked Jesus, what then do I lack? He's kept the law. Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, Jesus is answering more than just his salvation question here. He's answering what the rich young ruler is lacking. He's lacking salvation and discipleship. He's lacking salvation in everything that comes after it, everything that comes with it. And so he really has three things to say here. Sell all that you possess. Put your trust in God rather than in your own riches. This rich young ruler, being a man of his day, would look at his riches as divine favor from God trusting in those riches for his security. Jesus tells him, forget that security, trust in God. Sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor. Demonstrate love beyond the letter of the law, but according to God's righteousness for your neighbor. The result of that is not salvation, the distributing among the poor, but it is treasure in heaven. Salvation is necessary for him to have the faith to engage in selling all that he possesses and giving to the poor. The issue becomes rewards in heaven. That's what he's lacking. He's lacking building up for himself something of eternal value. And then Jesus tells him, come, follow me. Become a disciple. Not just one who is saved, not just one who has exercised some faith in God, the one who is actively pursuing God. This is what the rich man, rich young ruler was lacking. Salvation and everything that comes after it. Unfortunately, the rich young ruler goes away sad. This is too much for him. To love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength is too much. He can't keep the law. That should force him to seek someone who can, Jesus Christ, and to take on his righteousness but he also couldn't answer the first question Jesus asked. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Well, the disciples hearing this realize, wait, Jesus, what you just told him to do, that's what we did. We gave up all that we had on this earth and we left everything and followed you. What then is our reward? And Jesus tells them they do have a special reward. One of their rewards is waiting in the next life that they will sit on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes of Israel. He also tells them that they will have a manner of restoration even in this life, that they gave up all that they had physically, but they will gain spiritually even in this lifetime. What they have given up is not lost. It is transferred to something eternal. Now, we in the church get to experience this frequently. We live among fellow believers, and sometimes we give up our families in order to do that, especially in the case of Jews. When they come to faith in their Messiah, Jesus Christ, they often have to give up all family ties. The church is a replacement family for them, fellow believers who have their faith in Jesus Messiah. We don't just cohabitate. We are part of the same body. We are part of the body of Jesus Christ, and there is blessing in that fellowship. In fact, John, who uh, speaks up pretty soon here, writes a, an entire epistle about this very issue, the blessing of being in fellowship in the church and with God. That's the epistle of 1 John. All of this comes despite persecution. Despite the fact that they will be persecuted, they won't go about it alone. They have a spiritual family who is undergoing the same sort of persecution. There is still provision for much joy in this life. But that joy is found in fellowship with fellow believers. He also promises eternal life. 
He says, eternal life in the age to come. Now, sometimes we read this as if they are already in the church age and that eternal life is waiting until Jesus' return. We forget they are reading or that Jesus is saying this under the law, that the age to come is the church age, the intercalation between God's program for Israel, and that eternal life is imparted to the believer at the moment of faith during the church age. This eternal life we share directly with Jesus Christ because he died and rose again. We are baptized into his death and resurrection the moment we believe. We don't wait to receive that eternal life at the resurrection. We have it already at the moment we believe. Jesus then gives a parable talking about rewards. He says there's a landowner and he goes out in the morning to collect some workers for the day. He promises those workers a full day's wage for their work. Then he goes out again after three hours and hires more workers. He doesn't tell them specifically what he'll pay them. He says he'll pay them what is fair. He does the same thing six hours later, nine hours later, and 11 hours later, one hour before they finished working. When it came time to pay the workers, the landowner told his foreman to start with those who had only worked one hour, and he paid them a full day's wage. And so the ones that started in the morning, who were promised a full day's wage, saw how much those who worked only an hour got and suspected that they would get far beyond what they had been promised. But when it finally came time to pay them, they also received a full day's wage. They complained about this. God said, is, or uh, the landowner said, is your eye evil because my hand is generous? Are they measuring themselves up against the rewards of others or are they serving the Lord? Are they serving for what his generosity will give them, or are they serving with expectation of something better or more than the next? God will give according to our needs, and God rewards according to his grace. His grace was given to all of these workers, not just the last ones, not just the first ones. Now, the disciples don't quite get the message. This happens over and over again, and until the resurrection, then they start to get the message. It's helpful to see other people just as dense as we are. Jesus goes on to teach them nine things, not in a parabolic form, but as explicitly as he possibly can muster. Nine explicit details about what they will encounter when they get to Jerusalem. They have left Perea. They are on their way to the final week of Jesus' life. And he tells them when they go to Jerusalem, number one, they will be handed over or he will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, number two. The Jews will condemn him to death, number three. The Jews will hand him over to Gentiles, number four. The Gentiles will mock him, spit on him, scourge him, and kill him by crucifixion, five through eight. Finally, he will be resurrected on the third day. He says all of these things plainly. They don't get it. Instead, they go back to what Jesus was saying before about their rewards. They kind of liked that one. James and John, Jesus' first cousins, send their mom, Salome, Jesus' aunt, to ask something special for them in the kingdom. They want to sit on Jesus' right and on Jesus' left. They want to be elevated above the other ten disciples. And Jesus tells Salome, you don't know what you're asking. 
can they drink my cup and undergo the same baptism I am undergoing? This was his cup of suffering, the cup that was very difficult to bear, and the baptism was his baptism of death. James would be the first martyr among the twelve. John would be the last to die, and although he wouldn't be martyred, in fact, if memory serves, he is the only one who was not martyred. He lived an exceptionally long lifetime for that day and age, and it was a lifetime full of persecution, attempted martyrdoms, and finally, exile on the island of Patmos. These brothers did drink of the Lord's cup of suffering, and they did, at least in the case of James, undergo baptism of death, not by his hands, but by others. And don't forget, they tried to kill John multiple times. It just didn't work. Now, as they're leaving Perea, they enter through the city of Jericho. And there are actually two cities of Jericho. One is the Old Testament city, the one in which Joshua and the armies of Israel uh, conquered by the, well, actually God conquered and they were following along. And the New Testament Jericho was built by Herod. They were about three miles apart. And so this event takes place between these two Jerichos. As they're leaving the Old Testament Jericho, a crowd starts to follow them. And when they arrive at the New Testament Jericho, just a few miles away, two beggars meet them, and these beggars are blind. One of them, the more talkative of the two, named, named Bartimaeus, calls out to Jesus, calling him Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus keeps walking. He calls out again, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now the crowd tries to shush these blind men, but Jesus asks them, what do they want? Now first notice their persistence and notice what Jesus has taught already about persistent prayer. Jesus, or they're not praying to Jesus, but they are seeking Jesus' aid. They are being persistent as well. They might not be following the, same, the right format, calling him by his messianic title, but still he gives them an opportunity, turns to them and says, what do you want? At this time, Bartimaeus drops the title son of David and just calls him Lord. He also drops his cloak behind him. He runs up towards Jesus and tells him, Lord, have mercy on me. Open our eyes. Jesus sees their personal need. He sees the expression of their faith. The one who cast aside his robe probably expecting that he'd be able to find it when he came back because he would have his sight. And Jesus heals these two men. Because of his compassion, based on their individual faith and their personal need. And then Jesus tells him, and Mark records, that they were healed because of their faith. Now, when they get into the New Testament Jericho, the crowd is surrounding them, and there is a chief publican, a tax collector, a sinner, who is living and working in the city of Jericho, and his name is Zacchaeus. He's a short little man. He can't see over the crowds, so he climbs a sycamore tree so that he can see Jesus. Jesus sees him up there and tells him, Zacchaeus, come down. I'll be going to your house tonight. The crowd starts to murmur because they know what kind of man Zacchaeus is. He's not only a tax collector, but he's a tax collector in charge of tax collectors. He is the worst of the worst. Nevertheless, Jesus chooses him and chooses to dine with him. Immediately, Zacchaeus begins to express his faith. He says he's going to give away half of all that he has, and he is going to restore to any money which he 
acquired inappropriately, not just the required 20% under the law. He is not even giving the, the uh, extreme penalty under the law of returning a 40% increase. He says he will return a 400% increase. Unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus shifts his trust from money to God. Money was the reason he would have gotten into that profession in the first place because it ostracizes him from the religious community of Israel. You cannot be a tax collector and participate in the religious services of Israel. He shifts his faith, not in his own possessions, not in his worldly things, but to Jesus, the messenger of God. He trusts that although he is an outcast among the society, all that he has is his riches. He throws those away to follow Jesus. Jesus tells him as well that he is saved because of his faith. And now when they leave Jericho, they are moving ever closer to Jerusalem. And as they're getting closer, the disciples are wondering what will happen in Jerusalem. You can almost... I don't know if Jesus was the type to roll his eyes. There is plenty of opportunities for him to. This may have been one of them. But the disciples are expecting the kingdom to be set up once they get to Jerusalem. Now they're going to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is the wrong feast to fulfill the Messianic kingdom on. This doesn't seem to bother them or the rest of Israel, as we'll see. So Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them with another parable. And this, of all the parables, is probably one of the easiest to understand. Jesus is not veiling his parables very much here, particularly because he is speaking with his disciples. It's more odd for him to use a parable without an explanation with them, but here he does that. This is the parable of the minas. There's two groups of people. Well, first there is a nobleman, and he is going away to receive a kingdom. He is not immediately receiving his kingdom. He has to depart, and then when he returns, he will have it. Now, this might have brought some social uh, memory to their minds because Antipas, Herod Antipas, had done the very same thing. He had to go to Rome to get control over uh, his portion of Israel. He had gone away received a kingdom, and returned, and he had possessed it. Jesus is using the atmosphere around them, the things that are going on, in order to teach them spiritual truths. Jesus is going away before he comes back to establish the kingdom. Hosea 5.15 uh, teaches the same thing, that this was not something unforeseen, but this was known through all of prophecy, that the king would not receive his kingdom on his first advent. Anyways, as he leaves, he chooses 10 slaves. He gives each of them three months worth of wages, not to spend, but to trade, to go about his business. When he returns, he expects an account, an accounting from these slaves. The first one returns the mina, which is three months wages. And he gives him 10 more because he had exercised his responsibility going about the business of the nobleman, trading and increasing. And so he was able to return to the nobleman tenfold. The next one returned fivefold. Jesus gave to each one of these responsibility equivalent to their exercise of responsibility uh, while he was away. But the third one, he asks, hands him back only a mina, only the three months' wages. And he tells him he knows he is a respectable man. He knows that he reaps where he did not sow. And so he was fearful of losing the mina, and so he hid it in a handkerchief so he could return it when the nobleman returned. This was not the responsibility that the nobleman gave him. He did not give him the responsibility of caring for the mina, but going about his business, increasing the mina, 
And so the mina was taken from him and given to the one who had demonstrated responsibility with the nobleman's goods. The nobleman ruled over 10 cities, actually 11, because the one mina was given from the younger or from the uh, from the irresponsible slave to him, and then the other ruled over five cities. But now there's another group of people in this equation. These are called the rebellious citizens. When the nobleman first went away, they sent to say, we will not be ruled by him. And when he returned, these rebellious citizens were put to death. These are not believers. These are the unbelievers in the house of Israel. See, they are citizens of the kingdom. It belongs to them by inheritance, but they will not enjoy their inheritance without faith. Without receiving the king, they do not receive the kingdom. And now we get to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, but First, he takes a stop in Bethany. Now, Bethany, as we saw last week, was where Martha and Mary live, and they live there together with their brother Lazarus. And it hasn't been very long since Jesus rose Lazarus up from the dead. The last of, this, uh, of the signs that he would perform before his death, the last sign for personal faith, he performs signs on the basis of need, but this one was performed specifically so that others would see and believe. This was not a reoffer of the kingdom, but this was an opportunity for the unbelieving of Israel to believe in Jesus the Messiah for their personal salvation. Jesus goes to Bethany, to the house of Martha, and it appears that he stays there the entire week, but each morning he goes to Jerusalem. He does not sleep inside the city walls. When he arrives in Bethany, it causes quite a stir because many of the Jews want to go and see him because of the miracle he had performed, and they want to see Lazarus too. And it says that many of the Jews were believing in Jesus because of this miracle that he had done. This was a very successful miracle. Many were coming to an individual personal faith in Jesus, the Messiah, because of it. But overall, Israel was still in unbelief. The Pharisees and the Sadducees seek to kill Jesus, and now they also want to kill Lazarus because he had the audacity to be resurrected by Jesus, and because of him, many people are coming to faith, and so their solution, let's kill them both. But now, Jesus moves from Bethany into Bethpage, which is between Bethany and Jerusalem. Bethany is about three miles from the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. And Bethpage is a little bit more than a mile, close to two miles away. And between Bethpage and Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. Jesus, when they get to Bethpage, sends two of his disciples into the city and tells them to go and find a donkey who has a colt. They're tied up to untie the colt and to bring it to him. He says if they encounter the owner, to tell them that the Lord has need of it. Jesus here demonstrates his omniscience. He knows exactly the situation before he enters into the city. In fact, he doesn't even enter in. He tells the disciples what they will encounter when they get there. He exercises his authority as the Lord. This was the title that he chose to give to his disciples to say the Lord has need of the cult. And he also demonstrates his sovereignty over nature. Since this cult would have been an unbroken animal, it never had been ridden before, and so it would tend to buck, and yet we don't see this happening. Just like Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, after he was successful in his temptation, we see that wild animals and angels ministered to him. He was sovereign over both, and here he demonstrates his sovereignty over nature. 
but why does Jesus have need of the colt? It is not the normal practice of Jews to ride into Jerusalem at Passover. In fact, they would all go on foot. It would be an odd sight to see someone riding through the city gates. This was an expectation that the rabbis had for the Messiah. And Jesus was fulfilling that expectation. But more importantly, he was fulfilling a prophecy. He had need of it because prophecy must be fulfilled. God has said it, and so it will come to pass. Zechariah 9.9 was the prophecy that he fulfilled. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy as he rode into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. This is celebrated today in the church as Palm Sunday. It was the Sunday after a Sabbath, naturally, as Sundays tend to do. And as he began to ride in, well, first the disciples spread their coats on the donkey. And then the crowd started to follow in suit, spreading their coats in front of the donkey for Jesus to walk on. They also began cutting branches. They were laying those down in the road ahead of him as well. Now from this and from a few statements that they make, we get the idea that they expect Jesus to set up the kingdom. This was part of the celebration customs of the Feast of Tabernacles, not the Feast of Passover, cutting these branches. In fact, Moses had instructed the Feast of Tabernacles to be celebrated in this manner. This was also the way that they celebrated military victory. Perhaps they expected Jesus to overcome the Romans at this point. Both Simon Maccabeus and Judah Maccabeus were celebrated with this sort of parade when they returned from overcoming the Syro-Greeks. And so this is truly a triumphal entry. They're anticipating some sort of triumph. They are probably expecting him to overcome the Romans, who by this time have definitely exercised their restraining of Israel's ability to put to death their own prisoners. But the crowd also cries out to Jesus. They're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest. Now Hosanna, Hosanna quotes Psalm 118.25, which says, save us, save us, we beseech you. This is the meaning of Hosanna. Now Jesus is riding into the city to save them. They use his messianic title, son of David, and then they use the messianic greeting. Psalm 118.26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now in a few chapters, Jesus is going to tell us that he won't return until all of Israel is greeting him with this greeting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So why is it then that he is not setting up the kingdom here? All of Israel seems to believe in him. All of Israel seems to be welcoming him as the king. But unfortunately, two and a half years earlier, the religious Jews, the leaders of Israel, had rejected him. And only a few months ago, Judah had rejected him. And for both, he told them it was an unpardonable sin. There is no going back from that rejection. The doom of the city, the doom of Israel, is already on its way, and it will arrive in A.D. 70. The kingdom is not here being offered. They don't have the option to receive it anymore. It has been withdrawn from first century Israel, and it will be an offer restored to the last generation of Israel on this earth. And so that helps us to understand why, when Jesus arrived at the city, he wept over it. 
though they are welcoming him like the Messiah, he says, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus had come with the offer of peace. Peace is one of the characteristics of the messianic kingdom along with righteousness. But this has been hidden from their eyes. They won't see this peace of the messianic kingdom established in their day. Instead, the day will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is describing a military siege, military siege that would occur 40 years later, and a military siege that looks an awful lot like how Babylon had sieged Jerusalem before. Their rejection of the Messiah had dire consequences, and that generation would have to bear them, just as the consequences of the first generation coming out of Egypt had to bear their consequences, and the later generation, the second generation, got to enter into the promised land after a period of 40 years. Here the judgment comes after 40 years, because Jesus enters into the city on Nisan 10, of AD 30. The triumphal entry was not for the purpose of establishing the messianic kingdom. It was for the purpose of setting aside the ultimate Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was set aside on Nisan 10 every year. Moses commanded this in Exodus 12. And Jesus would be set aside on this day. This was his presentation of the Passover Lamb of God. Just as John had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is Jesus, and on that day, the day of setting aside the Passover Lamb, Jesus was set aside for the purpose of testing him, to see if there was any blemish in him. He's going to be tested by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees, by the scribes, and by the chief priests. They will not find any way to condemn him. He will be proven a spotless lamb. And on the 15th of Nisan, he will be offered up as the Passover lamb. So now it is the next day, Nisan 11, Monday, which is April 3rd, AD 30. As they are heading towards Jerusalem, they pass by a fig tree that has leaves on it. It's not the season of figs, but there is always the possibility of late figs still clinging to the tree, but more likely the presence of leaves would indicate that the early fruit is there. Now in Jerusalem, when there are leaves, or in Israel, when there are leaves on a fig tree, there is fruit. These early nodules on a fig tree are edible, and Jesus expected, since he saw leaves, to be able to take some of those edible nodules and eat it. In other words, it promised to have ripening fruit, but when he went up to it, it had no fruit at all. It made a false profession. And so he cursed this fig tree because it didn't have what it appeared to claim to have. This is much like first century Israel. It claimed to be obeying the law. It claimed to be anticipating the Messiah. But when he came and when he offered himself, there was no fruit in Israel. First century Israel would be cursed and it would wither, but there would be a later generation who would still receive the Messiah. There would be fruit in that generation. On this second day, Monday, Nisan 11, Jesus goes in and possesses the temple for the second time. The first time he did this was the very first day of his public ministry, a few months after he had been baptized by John the Baptist. He went in and he overturned the tables of the money changers, 
and he disrupted the selling of sacrificial animals, which uh, as we looked at, I think our third or fourth session, uh, was orchestrated by the sons of Annas in the bazaar of Annas. This was a money-making scheme for a chief priest who had well outstayed his welcome. In fact, he was no longer the chief priest, but the chief priests were under his control. And he orchestrated the temple uh, commerce to fill his own coffers. Jesus protested against this and against the usury that was being done in the very house of God. Jesus as the Messiah, this is his house. The temple belongs to him. And so once again, he overturns these tables and he possesses the temple. And once again, he makes an enemy of Annas. And we will see in just a few weeks that Annas will be one of the men who heads up his kangaroo trial. And at this point, John summarizes Jesus' ministry to this point. He is in the last stretch of his earthly ministry. John gives us his nice summation, but he does that around a, an event that happened on this, in this last week where a few Greeks who had come up to worship at the uh, Passover asked Philip, who then asked Andrew, who then asked Jesus if these Greeks could meet him. Jesus doesn't answer directly, but he does answer sufficiently indirectly. And in essence, he says, that's not why he came. He came to die. And until he has died and risen again, he will not call all men to him. These Greeks, though they are proselytes to Judaism, are not inheritors of the kingdom. The kingdom was offered to national Israel and to spiritual Israel. The salvation offered to the Gentiles through the blessings of Israel in the Messiah would come after the death and resurrection. But after they ask this question, Jesus prays out loud to God the Father. He says, Now my soul has been troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. And then God speaks out of heaven for the third time in Jesus' ministry. And he says, I have both glorified it, meaning his name, and I will glorify it again. His name will be glorified in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when the people around heard this, some thought it was thunder. Others thought that it may be the voice of an angel. And so Jesus tells them, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all men to myself. Notice how all of those signs which Jesus gave in the first part of his ministry are being repeated here in his last week. All of the signs which they rejected they are getting, once again, they have the witness of Jesus, they have the witness of the Spirit in his miracles, signs, and healings, and now they have the witness of God the Father himself. You might say first century Israel has stepped in it. Jesus said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Those who continue to reject Jesus the Messiah are not going to get more light by which they can believe. They will get less. Those who believe with what witness they have been given will receive more. Before Jesus departs from this earth, he is telling them, believe. While he is still there, while it is easiest to see and believe, believe because soon 
he won't be seen, but the requirement to believe will still be there. It will only be harder for them, though, in that day. Now John gives us a summary of Jesus' ministry, first in relation to Israel and then in relation to Jesus himself. About Israel, his summary is generally negative. He explains that Israel was willingly disobedient, willingly disobedient specifically to the command to believe in the one whom God had sent. Some did believe, however, even among the rulers, but they didn't follow. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. These men believed in Jesus and so were saved, but they were not disciples of Jesus. And so they were not building up rewards. And if they did not begin to follow Jesus, they too, uh, assuming they lived to eighty seventy, 70, would be caught up in the judgment. But their souls are eternally secure in Jesus. Now finally, John gives his summary of Jesus. Contrary to Israel, Jesus was willingly faithful. Willingly faithful to the commission of God the Father, faithfully doing all that the Father had commanded him to do and all that the Father had commanded him to say. And then Jesus gives a final offer. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This is the purpose of his first advent. He has come to offer the sacrifice of himself for the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Judgment is coming. They're not off the hook. Judgment has been postponed. Both, both the physical judgment of Israel in AD 70, it is not coming in AD 30 as it could. It is coming 40 years later, and this will give Israel the opportunity to repent. And we will see that yet another generation will pass. And many will still be in the sin because Jesus, the light, is no longer there. And they chose not to follow the light while he was there. And so they walked in darkness. But judgment for salvation is also coming in the last days. Up until the time of death, the believer or the unbeliever has the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ for his personal Savior. And at that moment, he becomes eternally secure in the double grip of God the Father and Jesus the Son. And now it is on Tuesday, as once again, Jesus and the disciples are going from Bethany to Jerusalem, that Peter notices a withered fig tree. And he says, Jesus, the fig tree. It's withered. Jesus then teaches Peter to have faith. He teaches them this principle as a principle of prayer. To pray believing that you will receive what you are praying for. To pray in a state of belief. He also teaches him to stay, pray in a state of forgiving. In other words, be in faith in relationship with God and be in or be forgiving towards others, be in relationship and fellowship with your fellow believers. And all these prayers will be answered. Now, this is not a blank check. This assumes if they are in fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another, that they are praying in the will of God. This is the principle of prayer. God answers prayers that are prayed in his will, and we pray in his will when we are in fellowship with him. Next week, we look at the testing of the Messiah. This in the student manual is lessons 138 through 144, and you can read Matthew 21 
and through 23, Mark 11 through 12, and Luke 20. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your Son. We are thankful for the record that you have preserved of his life on earth, especially his last week. We thank you that we have so much witness for the salvation that has been provided for us and that we can put our faith in Jesus to save us and that we do not have to rely on any of our own works. In fact, we cannot rely on any of our own works. We thank you and we praise you that you have made salvation so simple. It costs you so much and it costs us nothing at all. We pray that we will be faithful as disciples, we will, that we will maintain fellowship by confessing our sins with you and forgiving one another. We pray that you grow us in your word so that we might grow in our faith. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.